Hey truckers, uh, this podcast, this is for you. Uh, and I'll see how many times I'm gonna cry <laughs> through recording this podcast. I'm almost crying right now. Seriously, I am. This podcast is for you. My name is Mette Mitchell and I'm from Denmark and I live in Alberta here in Canada. I have spent quite a lot of time on this discussion about mandatory vaccines since 2016 where I became really engaged in, in this discussion. Um, and I would like to, for the first time, probably explain the whole story, why it is that I started to get engaged into this debate. I, 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 have, been, I have been withholding this story so much um, because it's difficult to come with any type of real evidence to say that this is what happened. And for me also, this discussion and, and these debates that I have taken part in about vaccines, it has very little. I'm not doing it because of my own story. And if you want to start sitting there and trying to pick holes in my story and say, you can't prove that, then I have to say, that's right, I can't. And then that would take away from my credibility, of course. So I have never... Uh, told my whole story. I've never told the whole real true story about why it is that I'm engaged in this debate. So now I'm doing it because with you, truckers, I feel like I can do it. I feel like this time somebody may be listening to this. Ha! So, truckers, Thank you, guys. Um, but before <laughs> I get to my story, I decided I wanted to share a little bit about my own favorite trucker. Before I was a mother uh, and before I was a homeopath, I worked for a big Danish furniture manufacturer and franchise chain and my job was to travel around the world and build new shops. And also I built a lot of trade shows. So when I say build, I didn't actually build them, but I was there to put, to add the finishing touches, so to say. Um, but it was big projects um, always that involved a lot of different people. And one of the really, really, really important, very, very, very important things um, that you need to work on when you're working in all of these different places. And it's just like oh, one of the smartest things you can do, basically, is to have a very good relationship with the truckers. Because if you have a good relationship with the truckers, so much just flows. <laughs> so many things just become so much easier. So... Uh, for instance, when we made trade shows, like we did this one big international furniture show in Cologne in January every year, or actually they already started building this, the different stands, they started building them already in December. Uh, but the show was in January and I would be there in January. And this is also where 
my favorite trucker is. I met him everywhere. I met him in many different places, but um, this was like the main gig that we did together. And that was, it's not really true. We saw each other all over the place, but when we were in Cologne, then it was a huge logistic thing, huge, huge, huge show. And this guy, uh, he was in charge of, I would say, delivering 80% of all the Danish uh, stands there because he had an office down there so he could coordinate everything. So you knew who to go to uh, when you wanted to get your goods or when you had to have some rubbish, rubbish taken away and so on. And there was just one thing you had to do. There's just one. There's just one rule that you absolutely had to stick to. Or this lovely, wonderful guy, Leo, he would just flip, and it didn't matter how nice you have been to him at all other times. But if you left so much trash in the, in the, in the you know, the, the pavements around your areas. If they, if you left trash there so that he couldn't get through with his truck, he would get seriously pissed off. And you know what? It's just completely fair because <laughs> he can't do his job when this happens. So it's just like, okay, you, you do it once and then you never do it again. But apart from that, then you could go to him and you could say, Leo, uh, we need to reach something four meters up, but our ladder can only go up so high. And then he would know where we could go and borrow a longer ladder. And he would maybe even bring it. This was the kind of things that he was just like the complete master. And he was just so used to helping people and so used to connecting people as well. And he would also bring people to our area to our stand and to me and say for instance Mette these people they have a little stand of 60 square meters down here and all their decorative accessories uh, uh, fell off the truck or whatever do you have something you can borrow for to them and I then it was just like of course you're just always happy when you could help this guy because you knew that you relied on his help help and maybe you don't rely on his help today, but you're gonna tomorrow or something like this. So that w it was just smart, I would say, to have a good relationship. Um, but I also really liked the culture that he came with and that he brought with him. Because also sometimes he would bring one of his m friends that I actually thought was working for him, but he didn't. He was just there to have fun, but he came there so often or we met him at the trade shows. So we got to know this guy. And this guy, uh, he was actually um, a single dad. He was looking after his, uh, his daughter and uh, uh, something happened to the mother. So she was not in the picture. And he, of course, loved that and liked that and, and had a lot of um, gratitude towards getting this experience in his life but he was also you know sometimes it's just good for me to get away and then he would go away with leo and then he would be together with a good friend and then be doing something meaningful at the same time and at the same time getting away there was just like a really nice friendship uh, to be able to observe and watch and you know um 
yeah, it was just super nice to hang out with these guys. And yeah, so that's my experience with truckers. Uh, and I just thought this was an appropriate place to share it because I really do have great respect for that kind of culture that I have met from truckers. And I can, of course, only speculate, but I also do think that part of the trucker culture gotta be to be feeling very comfortable about making decisions for yourself that you don't like so much having to have a boss coming through the room every day or I don't know I can just imagine that if you feel attracted to being a trucker then you'll probably also have some kind of attraction uh, to freedom and being used to making decisions for yourself and also be completely willing to take the consequences of your decisions and that you don't need a nanny state to come in and 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 make these decisions for you as as if you were a child and I can totally see that um so but that's just my imagination uh, maybe I'm just romanticizing you all right now. I'm sure there are some of you that are real assholes too, but uh, that's of course not what this podcast is about. Okay, now I would like to share my story with you to why it is that I like to talk about vaccines, why I think or not even vaccines, I don't even care about vaccines. Anybody can go and take as many vaccines as they desire. I have no problem with it. Go ahead, do it. But they can't be mandatory. Uh, and that's what this is about for me. I think it's probably okay also just to add that I'm not looking to blame anybody for anything that happened to me ever in my life. I am also quite happy to take responsibility for my own actions. That's okay. But it's also okay to point out places when, where there's flaws, where things are broken, where you see something that is not functioning right. And, the, and that's what this is, frankly. Okay, so I became a mother in 2006 uh, to a, a six weeks um, premature, beautiful, gorgeous girl. That all went quite well. We were in hospital for about a week's time or so. Then we went home uh, and there was a little bit increased, of course, attention from the healthcare system because you have been in hospital, so you have follow-up appointments. And that's just kind of like increased help, I guess they, they, they look at it as. And that's also what it felt like to a great extent, of course. Um, but I was in a lot of contact with the healthcare system and everybody was very, very uh, concerned about vaccine, vaccinations. And they were always asking about it. Is she vaccinated? Is she vaccinated? Is she vaccinated? It was this uh, question that I met everywhere. And it was it was... I was not comfortable with it. It didn't feel right. And, and, and frankly, also, even I thought it was excessive. It was okay. They really, uh, what's going on here? It was, it was too excessive. It was almost revealing itself in its excessiveness. But on the other hand, I was also so much in contact with the healthcare system. And I was also 
you know, a new mom with a, a little baby and uh, all of the emotions and changes that takes place with you. And I'd been in hospital and I, I'd been in hospital before she was born. And, and, and then when you, when you're in the hospital, it's as if you, you know, you, the people, the nurses, the doctors and so on, they become your friends and they know this part of you that nobody else really know or can ever understand about you. Um, and, and you don't want to fall out with any of them. Uh, I think that was for me, it was definitely a big motivation to go ahead with the vaccines. I was like, I think it's more damaging if I fall out with these people than it is to give the vaccines. I didn't feel great about it. But also, I didn't have anywhere really. I, don't, I didn't have a trusted source. I didn't have anywhere I could go. <clears throat> so that's what I ended up doing. I hope that you will just listen through to the end in this story before you kind of like make up your mind what this story is about. <laughs> because this story is not about that I say my child got hurt or damaged by a vaccine. This story is about it could have been. Okay, so she got vaccinated on the 6th of November and she got admitted on the 21st of November where she was presented with fever, lethargy and irritability and a blanching rash over torso. She had the diagnose after three days, she had the diagnose of viral meningitis. Um, before that, of course, she was treated with antibiotics, intravenous antibiotics, because she was admitted on a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap where you can actually see uh, that the liquid is not clear. Uh, it's milky or it's as if there, you, you can just see that the liquid is not clear. And when you see that, then you know it's meningitis. Then what you have to do is you take the spinal fluid, you grow it, try to grow it in a Petri dish. Um, and it takes about three days for bacteria to grow. Or if nothing has grown after three to four days, then you would say that there's no bacteria here. But Meanwhile, if you did have bacterial meningitis, then that would kill you long before you would get these results. So before you know if it's viral or bacterial, then you just start treating it as if it is bacterial. And so was she. She was treated with the life-saving antibiotics, what it would have been. Um, life it would have been life-saving uh, 100% uh, if it had been bacterial meningitis. Okay, so it wasn't, we got discharged, we go home. Um, and then she gets meningitis again. Uh, and the second time she has meningitis, that is, um, so the first time she was admitted, that was in November, and the second time she was admitted, that was in March. So, and the second time she was admitted, she had uh, bacterial meningitis and septicemia, and it was a big and very scary event that stretched out over five weeks where I would say that uh, two of the weeks were like a car crash. So it's like you go to sleep in a car crash and you wake up in a car crash. Very, I'm, I can talk about it now. It's, it's, it's a long time ago. I've done a lot of therapy. I talked about what happened a lot. Um, 
it gave me um, post-traumatic stress. Um, following, I suffered from anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Uh, I, I really, really, really did have to claw myself back after that experience. But of course, I was also desperately trying to find out what happened to my child. Why did my child have to get meningitis two times? And actually, when I started out on trying to, when I started out researching and trying to learn more, the first thing I was researching was if to find to try and find out if she had been treated differently by one doctor, if we could have then avoided having to go into intensive care. Intensive care, it's intense. You don't want to go there. If you tried it, you know what I'm talking about. It's a place you're thankful it's there if you need it. But the number one priority once you get in there is to get out of there again. It's not a place you want to hang out. So <clears throat> uh, what happened was that she, um, her, the cannulas or the, or the needles that they had in her to give her the intravenous uh, antibiotics, um, they kept closing up. It was like her, 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 her vitality was so good that every time they poked in hole in, a hole in her, she healed up really quickly again. So that meant that we had to change those needles all the time, which was basically torture for her. It was t also torture for me. Uh, it, it's something that uh, when you have to participate in, in holding your baby down, uh, to have them put needles in, into her, that, that's, that's, I think it's, it is probably torture. It's something that you do when you participate in as a mother because you just want this to go as quickly as possible because the quicker it is, the quicker it's over. And that is also true. But, you know, there's just something in the mother's heart that breaks when you have to take part in something like that. So I know it was uncomfortable for her and I know it was uncomfortable for me, but I really do <laughs> think for her as a baby, to go through this, I, um, I, 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 I can only imagine what it does to you as a human being um, at that stage of your life. It was also very frustrating for the doctors and for the nurses. It was a frustrating situation for everybody. Um, so uh, the doctor, he then decided to give her intramuscular injections in the thighs instead of giving her... IV medication. We even got discharged and we were allowed home and we should just come back into the hospital once a day for the injections. And we came, we were discharged on a Friday and we went in on a Saturday and told them that we didn't feel okay with her. And they said, well, actually you should go down to the emergency room again then. And we went down to the emergency room and <clears throat> and they felt confident that she was getting better and they sent us home and then we went in for the injections again on the Sunday and back to the emergency room again on the Sunday they sent us back home again and then we ended up back in the emergency room in an ambulance 
Sunday night and uh, she was put in an induced coma. So that didn't go very well. And of course the question had to be raised, was it the right thing to do to take her off the intravenous drugs and put her on the intramuscular drugs instead? To keep her on the intravenous drugs, what would have had to have taken place would have been an operation where they have, would have put a so-called long line into her leg, uh, where they would be certain they would be able to give her the medication through. But of course, the consultant doctor that night, he decided against that and, and, and went more the other direction uh, to, the, uh, intravenia, uh, to the intramuscular drugs. At that point, you know, when we were discharged from the hospital, we were discharged with septicemia, so manager B septicemia. When we were back in hospital again, in the coma, she had septicemia and meningitis. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's okay to ask the question, to figure out, you know what, should this actually have been treated in a different way? And I did pull all the courage together to ask a uh, to ask our consultant in Great Ormond Street about it. I I was curious to hear about his opinion. And he just I love this guy. I love this man so much. I really 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 do love him. He is the most brilliant doctor that I have ever met in my whole life. But when it came to this question, then it really felt like it was a sore point. And he encouraged me to move on, basically, and I should be very happy with the outcome, so to say. But also you have to understand that I was a mom and my baby had meningitis two times and I never wanted to go through this ever again. When I went through it the first time, I thought this was the worst thing that I was ever going to go through in my life. And then she had meningitis again and that was just like a gazillion times worse. And now I just really wanted to avoid that this ever, 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 ever happened to me again. But when I asked why did this happen or tried to find any answers to this question about how she was treated, it was the doors they just shut around me. And it became clear that this is not something that anybody had a real interest in discussing with me. <clears throat> it's not like you have a debriefing. Uh, after you have been in hospital where you can raise these types of questions or you can maybe bring suggestions to how things could be done in the future and, and, and so on. It's just like you're in the system or you're out the system and it's just like this mill that is kind of like going on endlessly. And of course, this is not me saying that I'm not grateful for the people that were there when my family needed it. Oh my God, this is something that I go through so often. Is there a day in my life where I do not think about this? I don't think so. And every single time I think about the people that I met through this, that looked after our child and did everything they could to save her life. I know that it's difficult to die in a hospital. I watched it. I watched it. She was dying. They didn't let her. They kept her here. And of course, then you can discuss why did it happen in the first place? That's not what I'm doing here. 
I'm just saying what I saw, these people, they did for us. That was amazing. We got to take a healthy baby home after going through this big, huge disaster. <clears throat> so finally, I found out um, some information about this uh, situation with the long line or the so the uh, intravenous medication or the intramuscular medication, and I found out about that uh, at a. A press day I participated in for the big reveal of the meningococcus B vaccine at the Institute of Child Health in London. Because at this stage I had become very engaged in the Meningitis Research Foundation. Um, first of all, I, I got in touch with them to seek advice. And secondly, then you get this, oh yeah, well, <laughs> I, I don't know if if anybody, everybody gets this feeling that it's just nice to be able to give something back, right? And I was attracted to go out and speak about meningitis and have people recognize the symptoms of meningitis so that they know what they look like because that's the main thing about meningitis. It is that you need to get really fast treatment and if you get the treatment fast enough, then you're going to be fine. If you get it too late, maybe you'll die and and also there's a very very high risk that you'll have big disabilities after it you know including amputations and and the uh, skin grafts lots of skin grafts uh, brain damage loss of hearing um, there are many things that can follow and, and a high percentage of the people that have this disease also experience some of these things so I know that I'm extremely lucky that I was in a place where there were some people that uh, knew what to do once they realized what was going on with her. Maybe you can also just throw in a little bit of survivor's guilt into that. <clears throat> but nevertheless, also extremely interesting. And I did become very engaged in the Meningitis Research Foundation. And uh, I offered to uh, share our story. Uh, whenever needed and did that at different times. I even got to give a speech in the House of Commons where I got to share our story. Um, and they were also, I would say, very, very good at making these good um, meetings where they invited the researchers that were researching in something and the press and then invite also victims, so to say, or people that have personal experience with meningitis, so that that could become part of a story that maybe they were going to report in the newspaper. So it was at one of those meetings uh, at the Institute of Child Health that I uh, cornered another consultant from St. Mary's in London, <clears throat> where they also have a big ward where they deal with meningitis. And I almost did not talk to him because I felt like, oh my God, Mede, when are you going to stop talking about this? But then also at the same time, I have this wonderful, wonderful uh, homeopathic teacher, Colin Griffith. And I, when I spoke with him about it at one point, he just looked at me and he just said, Mede, you have to find out what happened to your baby. You, you will never be able to put this down. Just go out and figure out what it is that is actually happened to her. So I had his words in my head 
that actually were the words that made me turn around and go back and grab this professor, <laughs> you know, uh, and say, hey, listen, do you know what? I actually have a question about the treatment that my daughter had for uh, meningococcus B, uh, septicemia. So this is his field and his area. And I, of course, uh, talked to him about it. And I explained it to him. And then we did this. And then on this day, we did that and blah, 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 and so on. And then he said, hold on a minute. He said, when did you stop getting the intravenous antibiotics? How many days did she get the intravenous antibiotics? And I said, five days. And he just said, but protocol says seven days. So then I knew that it was probably a good protocol that they had in place and that this protocol was not the one that they had stuck to in this situation. The consultant that had treated her in the other hospital, he went away from protocol. He treated outside of protocol. And that's probably why nobody wanted to talk to me about it. <clears throat> the one thing that was also so obvious about this doctor that made this decision, you know, at this point, <laughs> we were uh, uh, almost like celebrities at our local hospitals. You know, we'd been there when she was born and then we had the viral meningitis and then we came in again with the bacterial meningitis and so on. So we had a lot of greetings from a lot of the nurses and some of the doctors that, you know, some we got on telephone or, you know, a nurse came in and said, I just spoke to my colleague nurse from so-and-so hospital and they sent their regards and they were very happy to hear you're doing well now. And, and, you know, a lot of like that. But this guy never heard a word from him again. So it was a big disappointment. It was really, really disappointing to find out how the system had let me down here. It didn't even stick to its own protocols, you know. And it's not that I wanted to sue anybody. But, you know, this is something you could sue somebody on. And I was not given that opportunity. I was not given that information even when I asked my favorite doctor on the planet, when I asked him directly he did not talk about this. He didn't mention it. Did he hide it? I don't know. I don't like to think so. Um, but this is what happened. And this is how I was put on this trail to find out what's going on with vaccines. After I came out of hospital, we came out of hospital, I also just had this feeling that my baby had had enough medicine and now it was time to start learning about alternative medicine and other methods than the ones I had been presented to. Uh, just simply to avoid giving medicine when it was unnecessary. So I'm not talking about taking away necessary medicine. I'm talking about unnecessary medicine. So I became interested in homeopathy and at one point, I also started studying homeopathy. Um, so that's what happened in my life at the same time. I was going through the post-traumatic stress and I was doing charity work for, for the Meningitis Research Foundation. And I felt really, really honored when I got invited to speak in the House of Commons on behalf of the Meningitis Research Foundation. I had been to one of the lobbying events for the Meningitis Research Foundation 
uh, a year before or something like that and it had been really good fun so you have like this a, a nice room uh, with a microphone and people they can share things so you have like some program planned and you can invite the different politicians and then there is tea and cucumber sandwiches and everything is so very very British and English and when I had been there before uh, the one thing they had wanted to talk to the politicians about was to uh, keep meningitis on the new health reform uh, and make sure to keep bringing information out to doctors and nurses and the general public about meningitis so that everybody can learn to spot the symptoms very early so you know like a really good and worthy course and and something that was very easy to uh, be behind so this meeting was a little bit different the noble cause to uh, fund research into meningitis and to inform the public about the symptoms of meningitis had all of a sudden turned into become this one vaccine agenda and it became all about Novartis vaccine the meningococcus B vaccine <clears throat> and and so I found out that the meeting that I was then invited to talk on, this was a meeting where they wanted as many members uh, of the government or of parliament to uh, agree on already now to sign the meningococcus B vaccine into the childhood vaccination program as soon as they got it approved. I'm not sure I even really clocked that, you know, it all sounds uh, very good and so on. Uh, I had a lot of other things going on in my life there and, I, and I was, there were different things that I was trying to find out. But the one thing that actually really shook me, it was that when we met in our green room before our, the lobbying of official event started, I was met by these two uh, sugar-coated ladies uh, that came towards me and they both had their heads you know like so much on the side when they looked and tilted their heads so much that their ears almost touched their shoulders and they were like oh are you mad and are you the one that had to go through and they just couldn't get enough of making me understand how much their heart was bleeding for me and at that point, I was kind of like, okay, my heart actually stopped bleeding a little bit, so I'm not really sure where you're getting that vibe from. It was over the top, that's what I want to say. They were, just, they were just so over the top interested in me. And then they said, hey, uh, can we just read your speech? And I thought that was very strange. I have to say, this was also the first and only time that I have spoken in the House of Commons. I don't know how these things work. And so I thought it was that I didn't know who these ladies were and so on. And, and they, I think they probably also said to me, we don't have to. Or it, 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 it was not a demand. They just asked me if they could. And I just willingly gave them the speech. And they came back and told me that the speech was wonderful. Uh, so there was nothing in there. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they were looking for, but it was just such a strange experience. Got into the House of Commons and uh, I got to give the speech uh, and they got uh, a lot of the signatures that they, that they wanted. Uh, and, and, and I had 
now had this very direct meeting uh, with the medical industry um, in the form of what I would describe as marketing, Nova marketing from Novartis. And then I started feeling a little bit dirty. That in, in, it, it was like, okay, now it feels like I am being used to serve somebody else's interest. And I didn't like that feeling. And it was uh, shortly, uh, uh, not long after that, that, that I went to this other meeting with the big reveal of the meningococcus B vaccine that everybody had been talking about and hyping up so much. Now it was here. Thank God it's here. Now you're all invited to come in and see what it's all about. We have this presentation and at the Institute of Child Health. Uh, and I was invited and that was exciting. And of course I went, I wanted to see what is this. And then we sat down and first we had this presentation where we were going to see how they made this work and so on. And the, one of the first things that really hit me, and actually I have a picture of the slide. I took a picture of the slide. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But what they said was, they were not what they said, they were bragging about how clever they were to genetically modify the meningococcus B bacteria in a way that it could be used in a vaccine. And I was like, what? I was like, I, it was, I couldn't believe what it was that I was hearing. I was like, are you injecting or intend to inject genetically modified deadly bacteria into babies' bodies? I was like, okay, it just, it just sounds very very freakish and and everybody was just like behaving as if it was completely normal and that was weird too then secondly they said we expect this vaccine to work in approximately 65% of the people that get it i was like what 65% and you're calling this a triumph and in particular when i paired that with what i knew about meningitis very, very deeply and to my core. When does it go wrong with meningitis? It goes wrong with meningitis when you don't suspect it, when you say it's not there. It's difficult to find out that somebody has meningitis. You know, what they do is they check your ears and they say, okay, you're red in your ears. And then they say, great. Then now we know why your body is inflamed because you have something going on in your ears. Okay, they look in your ears, there's nothing in your ears. And they can look in your throat, there can be something there or not. And then they can also make a quick test on the urine and see if there's something in there or not. And if there's no signs of infection in the ears, in the nose, uh, in the ears, uh, in the throat, uh, or in the urine, <laughs> well, then, that's the time to say, okay, then maybe it's meningitis because meningitis is in the spinal fluid and septicemia is in the blood. So until you have any samples of that, then you can't really tell if that's what you've got. But if you come in and so we were sent home with no signs of anything happening in the ears, no signs of anything happening in the throat, with no signs of anything in the urine, presenting with the symptoms, we were sent home. So what do you think is going to happen when a person comes into the hospital with a fever, 
nothing in the ears, nothing in the throat, nothing in the urine, and have a meningitis vaccine, then the doctor, it's not very likely that the doctor will know how little this uh, vaccine actually covers. And they'll just say, okay, good, you're vaccinated, great. So then it, we know it's not this. So I was thinking, oh my God, maybe even more people have to die now because less meningitis is going to be suspected. So I was just like, what? What? I was like, oh, at least I would have expected from these people to kind of like weigh it up a little bit, to just kind of like present, to say, okay, with, with, with this, there's also this kind of risk and we have to look at that. There's none of that. And then, of course, the, <laughs> the last thing that kind of like hit it on the nail for me, that was like, then they said, and this vaccine works for five years. And I was like, what? It's like, I can't take it anymore. Is this the big reveal we have been waiting for? Is this, is this the big breakthrough in science? And it blew my mind. And I have, to, and this is how I can say for real and 100% that it's science that made me reconsider vaccines. Not even, it, it, it's not Jenny McCartney or it's not any of the bullshit that you'll hear that people, they will say about people changing their mind about vaccines. No, it was the science. It was the scientist that I met. And this was then, of course, at the same meeting where I almost left. I just couldn't take it anymore. I didn't. I just wanted to get out of there because I had just learned these things about the vaccines. But then I remembered Colin's words, turned around, got the consultant from St. Mary's and got this very important conversation with him. So that was a big, big day for me. And it was actually also only at this point where I started saying, okay, now I know where to start when I want to research more about vaccines. And of course, what I found out is that encephalitis, which is a disease that has very similar symptoms to viral meningitis, um, is a side effect of vaccines. So whether or not this is something that happened to my child, whether or not she was harmed by a vaccine, then I know for sure that she could have been and that's why I started speaking up in this issue. And that's also why I decided not really to share my story, because as you see, you know, who can say, is it really? Do, does anybody know? No, nobody knows. But I don't think it's necessary for anyone to be 100% sure whether or not my child got harmed by a vaccine. What we need to talk about is that side vaccines have side effects. And not only that, there are so many issues around these side effects. They are recorded badly, very poorly. The systems that we have in place that we trust are there and that they're working, they are not working at all. And exactly who do you think is going to help you if you have a side effect? The side effect specialists? Of course not. There is no such thing. We have specialists for everything, but we do not have any specialist that can go in and that can review different side effects from medication, different side effects from um, interventions or medications or vaccines or something like this. No, there are no such specialists. 
Try even to have a conversation with your GP about it. Try and have a conversation with anybody about it that you had a vaccine side effect. Look how this topic is being treated by the press. Imagine how society is going to behave around you. You are going to be treated as if you are a so-called tinfoil hat. You know, us mothers, we have been pissed on for such a long time. We have been laughed about. We have been ridiculed. But now I have you guys, truggers. Now you are here and you are showing your spirit. You are showing what it is that you believe is a good way of living life. And I am so thankful and I'm so grateful for you for doing that. Um, and I hope that my story will give you more strength because we all know that you are going to need it. Dear truckers, thank you so much. I love you.